Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Hello, and welcome to episode 241 of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. We are here today with David Trone, the founder and co-owner of Total Wine & More, the largest privately owned beer, wine, and spirits retailer in the United States operating with stores in 22 states. David is a former Democratic candidate for Maryland's 8th Congressional District and established the Trone Center for Criminal Justice Reform at ACLU. He also established a Trone Family Public Policy Initiative Fund at Wharton at the University of Pennsylvania. And finally, he is currently a Democratic candidate for Maryland's 6th Congressional District. David, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Fantastic, Jordan. Thanks for having me. Excellent. So, the first question I'd like to pose to you is, what are you currently doing, or what have you ever done to advance the public interest, and why? That's a great question. One of the most important things that we've really done that's uh, the public interest is be a job creator. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've created, since we founded the company almost 30 years ago now, over 6,000 excellent paying jobs. It's afforded families the ability to have a great house, a great life, get their kids a great education, etc. So that job creation, I think, is the most important thing to move everybody forward uh, together. Excellent. So job creation is something clearly that drives you a lot. But of course, you didn't have a $2.7 billion business from the get-go. In the very beginning, you had some, uh, uh, some difficulties in actually starting this business. Can you walk us through exactly how you started Total Wine & More in Pennsylvania and how you dealt with different challenges and ended up growing it to where you are today, able to offer 6,000 jobs. Yeah, we started uh, quite differently. Very humbly, we grew up on a farm, and I was just out in Garrett County and then Allegheny and Washington County, uh, Western Maryland, on a campaign swing, and we could see uh, a very rural lifestyle, which is exactly how I grew up, uh, where the center of the town is the fire hall, Mm the Lions Club, and the Veterans of Foreign Wars. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's how rural life revolves, and that's where we lived for decades. And that farm was all about 50-some thousand chickens, mm-hmm. 6,000 hogs, and a lot of hard work. Where you grew up. Where I grew up. We actually used to work our egg processing plant, Jordan, 13 shifts a week. So when you work 13 shifts and you're in charge that's a lot of hours. Would it make sense for you to have inherited the agricultural business instead of starting a beer and wine retailer? Well, uh, pay was tight, a little bit low. Dad paid about a buck eighty an hour, <laughs> and you punch the time clock every day. You punch the clock in, you punch the clock out. So we learned a couple things. Number one, the most important was the importance of hard work. Mm-hmm. Uh, if whoever works the hardest is probably going to win at the end of the day. Uh, that's key. They always say 90% of anything is showing up. Mm-hmm. Well, we sure did that. We learned the hard work, but we also learned that we need to take risk and have new ideas. Mm-hmm. And if we don't keep driving new ideas and keep driving change and embrace that, uh, we can't get ahead in life. And that's true in business and entrepreneurship. And Dad was a serial entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. He really got the idea of trying different things. Mm-hmm. Um, now, unfortunately, uh, sometimes bad things happened to good people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Dad drank a little too much, uh, didn't pay enough close enough attention to some of the profit and loss statement, and we hit some, uh, the farm hit some hard times. Uh, the farm, my father went bankrupt. Uh, they actually came in and took the farm, took our home. Uh, so 
at that point, we started over. We hit the reset button, and I realized I needed a job. Uh, I, my parents, can we just interject there for a minute, yeah. David? You ended up trying to find a job and, and going into the beer and wine. Your father, you said, had a history with alcohol abuse. Was it difficult for you to go into an industry and build a career and an, and an empire, in, in fact, uh, based on a substance that you said you attributed some of the downfall of your own family's, uh, I guess, financial stability to the substance? Yeah, you're absolutely dead on. And it is ironic. Uh, the question is, is it's really created an awareness with us of the downsides of addiction. And that's something that we've done a lot with in our foundation. My wife and I's foundation has done an awful lot to help on addiction and also responsible drinking, uh, working with agencies and groups all over the United States mm-hmm. uh, to talk about uh, the dangers of drinking and driving and etc. So I think that's brought a real sense of the importance of moderation and uh, thoughtfulness in that area. But So there's some irony there, no question about it. But that farm, when it failed, I went back and said, I need more education. Mm-hmm. And education uh, is super important in my life. Mm-hmm. So I went to the Wharton Business School, took out student loans. Uh, most important thing, I met my wife there. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's a mechanical engineer. Also took out student loans, lucky me. And uh, we both graduated from Wharton. And while I was there, I opened up a small beer store, beer only. While you were a student? While I was a student, my second semester at Wharton. And in Pennsylvania, you can only own retail privately beer. Wine and spirits are sold by the state. So I opened a small store in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Well, how can you open a store in Harrisburg when you're taking student loans because you can't afford tuition and you're in Philadelphia? And that's a great question. It's because of family. And when you have a family and you have some unique ideas about how to finance things, mm-hmm. uh, you're able to work it. So my mom worked there. My brothers worked there. Uh, the family was uh, there during the week. I would come back on Thursday nights to the train mm-hmm. from Philadelphia, work there Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And you still managed to date in Philadelphia to meet your wife. Yes, I took her back to the train a number of times, too. She, <laughs> yeah. would, uh, she would come back. and um, So we'd go back on the train then again Monday morning or Sunday night, back to Philadelphia. So it was a different type of student experience. Mm-hmm. But also we had an idea of how to drive the business basically using credit yeah. from the soft drink companies. Huh. So with soft drinks, Coca-Cola and Pepsi-Cola, you don't have to pay those guys for 60 days So at that time. So we were able to buy literally tens and tens of thousands of cases of soft drinks, buy them on credit, sell them quickly, create the cash flow from that, and then not pay those bills for 60 days. Now that must have been so tough for you because if you didn't sell them within 60 days, you might have found yourself in the same situation that your father found himself in. Right? Bankruptcy if you're not able to pay. So did you? what did you think about those risks? I mean, did you ever come close to not selling and being able to meet your, your payment deadline on, on uh, receivables in well, 60 days? Well, there were, certainly, uh, there were certainly lots of hard times over the decades as we built the business uh, where you're living you know, week to week, mm-hmm. uh, day to day. Uh, but it takes a lot of financial planning. That's one thing we certainly learned about in graduate school is mm-hmm. uh, budgeting and getting a plan. You're right. And uh, frankly, if you have a great offering for the customer, and one thing we learn about business is it's uh, three C's. Mm-hmm. It's customer, it's culture, and it's competition. 
So we like to look at every day when we get up, how do we make this a better experience for the customer? Mm -hmm. Because if we only think about that, never think about making a profit or a loss. Think about how is it better for the customer. If we can do that, everything works. And the second piece is culture. Mm -hmm. Culture is our people. And that's 6,000 men and women around the United States. And that's why we have been successful. We've been lucky, absolutely. Mm -hmm. But success has come because of our investment and long-term thinking with our team. Our team members investing in training, investing in great benefits, uh, investing in education with them, mm -hmm. and all those things to think long-term and delegating them the power and the ability to make decisions have their ideas come to fruition sure. and Jordan be comfortable with failure because sometimes things don't work out and you got to say oh, that's fine that's all right we didn't bet the farm on it because that mm. didn't work out yeah <laughs> absolutely but so it doesn't work we learn from failure so failure is actually a good thing in moderation yeah so I want to talk about culture for a minute. Um, you just spoke about investing in your employees at Total Wine and More around the nation and that, and making long-term investments and having employees stick around for a while. It's been helpful to your business. Now, through the course of, of running your business, you've become quite involved in philanthropy. In fact, as we mentioned earlier, you've given money to the American Civil Liberties Union to try to uh, help their efforts in reducing recidivism among formerly incarcerated populations. Now. You've released a report that says that employing a formerly incarcerated person actually leads to less turnover by 12% than uh, a normal, uh, a non-formally incarcerated employee. Can you speak about some of the business lessons that you learned by being uh, the subject of lawsuits that were simply unfair in Pennsylvania from your perspective um, and, and being able to defend yourself and, and, and then how that led to you getting involved with the ACLU and eventually using your, uh, your, your uh, munificence to fund uh, a reduction in recidivism and how you've been able to use those individuals to help your business bottom line. Yeah, we learned uh, early on that you can work really hard, but uh, sometimes government can be abusive, mm -hmm. and there's no question. And we were always fortunate in that we had good education, and we had a, a few dollars in a bank to work through challenges uh, when government targets, targets you. Mm -hmm. But a lot of folks, uh, especially people of color and folks that don't have uh, the financial means or perhaps the education, mm -hmm. um, get caught up and wrapped up in the criminal justice system and get in the pipeline, the cycle, and they can't get out. Mm -hmm. It all starts with education uh, because if folks don't get the ability to be educated and fall behind by third grade in reading, they never catch up. Mm -hmm. And then they can't get the job they want. And then sometimes some bad decisions happen and folks get caught. But we spent last year $80 billion on the criminal justice system on prisons. Mm -hmm. And that's more than we spend in most states on education. But our experience with the system you know, told us that a lot of folks of color a lot of folks are being discriminated against. And if we can step up and make a difference, and it's really two focuses, education, and we have United Negro College Fund President and CEO Michael Lomax mm -hmm. on our task force, and he is brilliant. Mm -hmm. And we also have Walmart, because mm -hmm. the other piece is jobs. Because when folks are in a, coming out of prison, they need training and education to be ready for a job, mm -hmm. but if they don't have the job waiting, 
They walk right back into the same neighborhood, the same habits, and they go right back into the prison system. So what we've seen at Total Wine and More by just not only banning the box, but by actively saying those folks were formerly incarcerated are returning citizens. And can I just interject to define, for our listeners who don't know, David just referred to banning the box on employment applications, and in that box it would ask if you have any prior criminal history. Right, and that's really important. And a lot of businesses across the country have now banned the box, including Walmart, mm-hmm. uh, the largest employer in the United States. Mm-hmm. So we have their head of HR on our, on our task force, and we're working to get the metrics, the statistics to show that returning citizens are awesome team members. They make a bigger labor pool that's there, mm-hmm. and they say, hey, I appreciate you taking a chance, and I'm going to reward you with great work. Right. And these folks are turning over, as we show in the report, less than other folks, and the most insidious hidden cost mm-hmm. in business mm-hmm. that affects your customer service is turnover. turnover. It is unbelievably expensive, phenomenal. And when we can keep our team members longer, they're going to do a better job taking care of the customer. Uh, so we're working with some other groups to also try and get metrics. And then hopefully we'll be able to convince corporate America, um, starting with Walmart and Bentonville, yeah. that this is a great labor pool of great folks that can do a great job and then advance up the pyramid, up the business ladder. So uh, speaking about affecting customer service, and you mentioned that the three most important things to a business is customer, culture, and competition. Let's speak about customers, but let's turn it around a little bit. You're also involved in politics. You're a candidate right now. You previously were a candidate. And I'd like to talk for a minute about the transition in your mind from a customer for your store to a voter or a constituent who's really a customer of the politician. How is it that you first became involved or became interested in running for a congressional seat in Maryland? Uh, and then, you know, uh, let's, let's just start with that story and, and how you became involved and, and I guess how your experience dealing with customers is analogous to the experience that you've had dealing, dealing with voters. Well, the customer and the voter are the same, the same person. That's who the politicians are there to serve, and that's the voter. Mm-hmm. And sometimes they think that they're there to get reelected. Mm-hmm. They think they're there to raise more money. Uh, but that's, that's wrong. They're there to work with and take care of the needs of the voter. So constituent services has to be first and foremost. And we have customer service first and foremost. Mm-hmm. It's no different. No problem, big or small. Everyone has to be addressed and addressed immediately and quickly. So that's something, if I'm fortunate to be elected, that we will absolutely knock that out of the park. Mm-hmm. Constituent services in the district that's very diverse. Mm-hmm. Uh, Montgomery County is quite different than what you have in the four upper counties. And we need to be a congressman that can serve all of the district, mm-hmm. not just the um, more urban or more rural, but every part of the district. Uh, and that takes knowing how we grew up in a rural district. You know, we understand the upper counties also, which is a plus. Uh, however, when you think about public service, my wife and I reached a point where we just feel like Washington is not working for the average person on the street. It's working for the politicians who get elected and reelected, but nothing is happening. I mean, right now, health care finally got passed. Everyone deserves health care, mm-hmm. 100%. If you're in Europe or anywhere, Europe or the other civilized, heavily civilized, industrialized countries, 
they have 100% health care. Now, you say that Washington is not working. Of course, it may be argued that our founding fathers created a Washington that was intended to not work. In fact, they would, much, they would view not working as progress compared to some uh, overbearing uh, tax that may be levied by a distant King George III. So can you speak about, uh, I guess, you view Washington as not working. Why is that a bad thing, and whose fault is it? Is it really the elected officials? Is it the people? Are the elected officials doing the people's bidding? For instance, with the Tea Party, they really are sent to Washington to make sure that Congress doesn't do anything, or at least that's the way some of them uh, uh, interpret what their mandate was. Can you speak about Congress? Yeah, it's really a, a difference in approach that the Washington should be there thinking long-term. Mm-hmm. Businesses that are successful, like our business, we think long-term every day. Mm-hmm. But corporate America and Wall Street, they think short-term. Washington itself, government, thinks short-term. So you're different and than corporate America. By totally, because we're a family-owned business. Mm-hmm. We, don't, we don't plan for today, tomorrow, this year. We make decisions based on what's going to be best for our company and our customer and our team, mm-hmm. our people, in a 10-year period plus. Mm-hmm. So getting the right real estate, training or tr- hiring the best people, training those folks, investing in great pay, investing in medical plans, retirement plans, mm-hmm. partner benefits, all the things that a progressive business can do to value mm-hmm. and, of course, education benefits. So, you know, our company offers a free GED for anybody in the country that doesn't have one. We have a program now in Virginia and Maryland. We're offering a free college education. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the University of Maryland. Mm-hmm. If you work one year and you're full-time, that's simple, mm-hmm. real easy. But D.C. is not thinking long-term. Examples would be you know, cutting NIH, you know, cutting spending on health investment, health care investment, mm-hmm. attacking diseases like Alzheimer's, cancer. Why would we want to cut that? Cutting environmental spending. Mm-hmm. Well, that's what's going to be there for our children. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Chesapeake Bay. I mean, climate warming, you know, global warming, all those things, those are long-term problems that government right now, um, the Trump government, is looking short-term, mm-hmm. not long-term. Education is the biggest. Sure. If we could figure out how to educate our three- and four-year-olds mm-hmm. in low-income areas where they hear millions of words mm-hmm. that they don't hear now, by the time they got the pre-K, which has to be universal, mm-hmm. They'd be performing on average where folks that come out of the high-income neighborhoods are. Then we've got to figure out how to go from K to 12 to K to 14. We need to have free community college. We need to have vocational schools to train plumbers, electricians, etc. Mm-hmm. Now, some of these ideas have been articulated by currently sitting congressmen. You, it seems as though you say one of the greatest problems with Washington, right? With Washington and Washington being a direct reference to the United States Congress is that they're thinking more short-term instead of long-term. Of course, um, if you were to go, I I guess, if you were to go there, why would things be any different? Do you expect that suddenly the gridlock would dissipate if you were elected? Are there ideas that you have that you think no other congressman has? What is it about getting you elected that would actually change anything? Um, And again, that's presuming that we want change. Well, first of all, as you know, there's never a silver bullet. Mm -hmm. Uh, Change and progress is incremental, it's difficult, it's laborious, it's time-consuming, but it takes a relentless uh, personality, a willingness to work across the aisle, work with, work with moderates, work on both sides, Republicans and Democrats, and we need to change the mindset that we support a brand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yes, I'm a Democrat, 
and certainly we believe in democratic democrat ideals but we have to support the american people not the brand democrat or not the brand republican mm-hmm. and this polarization that we see by this support of the brand over top of and taking precedence of what's right for our voters our constituents our people that's uh, creating this divide along of course with gerrymandering which is Moved everybody to the outside. Do you oppose gerrymandering? Yeah, ger- gerrymandering is just a disaster. Mm-hmm. Uh, gerrymandering has led to this polarization, and uh, the Democrats are at fault, the Republicans are at fault, but some states, Iowa, California, have gone out, gotten a nonpartisan commission. Mm-hmm. They've actually done it the right way, and they've figured out with boundaries that make sense where people have commonality, and they move forward. Would you support the formation of a nonpartisan uh, independent redistricting commission for the state of Maryland? 100%. And all districts, I mean, the concept of, hey, if we change, we'll change Maryland if somebody else changes Virginia, yeah. it's just downright ridiculous. Right. You um, think that, that it should change, if, if, if it's the right thing to do, that it ought to be done, even if it comes at the cost of a Democratic seat in Congress? 100%. Even if it's your Democratic 100%. seat? 100%. It doesn't matter. What matters is we move America by working as a team, by working cooperatively, and we've got to move people to the center. Mm -hmm. And the center is where we're going to be able to create more jobs, fix the infrastructure. I mean, right now, America's rated D. Mm -hmm. D is in dumb. (laughs) D plus Uh on infrastructure. How can the greatest country in the world infrastructure, and whether that's, you know, roads and bridges and dams, Mm -hmm. but also it's broadband. I mean, how can we be a D plus? So, where do you, if you're elected to Congress, where do you think you'll succeed where others have failed? We're going to succeed by trying to work really uh, relentlessly and talking about finding common ground. And there's got to be a majority of folks out there that say we like to fix Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. That's probably a good thing. So we start there. Then we got to find a bunch of folks that say, you know what, we do think that our infrastructure can't be a D plus. Mm-hmm. We gotta find a bunch of folks that say opioids just took sixty thousand lives last year, mm-hmm. including my nephew on uh, New Year's Eve, age twenty five. Sorry to hear that. Yeah. But heroin laced with fentanyl, it's a total national tragedy and the Trump administration is doing nothing. They their own report said they need to declare a state of national emergency, and they've done nothing but propose cutting spending in all these health care areas that can begin to help us in a lot of different ways. So it's working across, it's working with a lot of folks, but it's working relentlessly with small goals. These are the goals. Mm-hmm. It's opioids. What are we going to do about it? Here's some steps. Everybody can agree with that. Alzheimer's, dementia. It's running rampant. Everybody can agree with that. David, we are approaching the end of the podcast, but before I hit you with the final question, I'm really curious on this opioid thing. I have a public health background. A lot of um, responses to opioid, the opioid epidemic in Maryland and around the nation are really reactive instead of proactive. So we can have a clean needle exchange so that when they're doing heroin, they're not going to be spreading AIDS. But I haven't heard very many proactive approaches to reduce demand for the hero- for heroin to begin with. Do you have any ideas? I mean, you've spoken about what happens if they if they take heroin and end up in prison, how you can reduce recidivism. But do you have any ideas about how to head on proactively address the heroin epidemic? Yeah, 
addiction is a, uh, and I've seen, you know, dealt with that with our, my father. Addiction is just a really tough battle, and it's very genetic. And that genetic, uh, gen- that gene just goes generation to generation. And I agree with you. You're absolutely right, Jordan. Uh, there's so many different things on, you know, drugs you can take at the at the moment, and Narcan to just stop the, what's what's happened. Mm-hmm. And then there's other things, methadone, etc., that you can do afterwards. And there's lots of things. You're right on the back end, but on the front end, there's not a lot of talk about that. And we've got to figure out how to get the experts in a room and the the doctors and uh, and figure out what can be done if anything can be done because. If folks have that craving and have that need, uh, they're going to make that decision. And so it's, did, it's affecting everybody, white, black, or brown, rich and poor. It's, And I think now we're talking more about it because before it was in a lot of our urban neighborhoods um, where folks of color live mm-hmm. and nobody paid any attention. And now that it's gotten out into the suburbs and the uh, suburbia, now they're paying more attention. Well, that's a tragedy, mm-hmm. but at least... We're moving in a right, a better direction where some people are starting to notice it. But we've got to, we got to take steps. You make a good point that it's one of the few issues that is probably affecting the constituents of every member of Congress. So hopefully, if you get elected, there's some work that can be done there. As we, we are approaching the end of this episode, so I'd like to ask you a final two-part question, David, which is to reflect upon your years in business as an entrepreneur, uh, your involvement in philanthropy and in politics. I'd like you to take a moment and speak to your potential future constituency in District 6 and tell them about why it is that you've found public service to be a worthwhile calling for you, why you haven't uh, just sought to maximize profits for yourself and sit at home, which is perfectly legitimate and many Americans do that, but why you've sought to do more than that and try to tackle recidivism and why you've tried to tackle illegal barriers and support the ACLU and why you've tried to run for office. Uh, and so your motivations on the first hand and the second second part of that question is your legacy. What is your legacy? What what is it about your time and dedication to public service that, that you are leaving for others? Whether you win or whether you don't win, you have this business, you've spent a great deal of time uh, building up your career. What are your motivations and what is the impact of your work? As Robert Kennedy said, if we can leave the world in a better place, uh, that's a pretty fantastic legacy. And all of us are focused on our legacy as our children. And our children is all about long-term thinking, this next generation, the generation after that. So, yes, we could continue in business. Yes, we could step aside. But the opportunity to publicly do public service and bring our intellect, bring our experience, bring our resources to bear, and put in the time, put in the work to say these are goals that can help tens of thousands of folks and if we can just get one or two or maybe three of them done and help 10, 20,000 people mm-hmm. in that are stuck in the education system, stuck in the criminal justice system, stuck in the immigration system, you know, suffering the ravages of various diseases, that would be an unbelievable legacy for my children and other people's children. And that's what leadership is, stepping up, putting in your time, and, and showing here's the vision. Here's what we want to do, and then establishing and showing a roadmap, uh, a road to get there. Uh, again, small steps, uh, working with others, uh, but that's what we hope to leave behind. And that has been David Trone, the founder and co-owner of Total Wine & More, 
former Democratic candidate for Maryland's 8th Congressional District and a current Democratic candidate for Maryland's 6th Congressional District. He established a Trone Center for Criminal Justice Reform and a Trone Family Public Policy Initiative Fund. And David speaks about long-term planning, long-term vision, what he has brought to his business. And he attributes his success of building uh, a $2.7 billion national enterprise is long-term thinking, investing in the customer first and foremost, which he translates into the voters and the constituencies for uh, his political uh, initiatives. Uh, And then second, the culture. He's always been very interested in prioritizing the... um, the employees and the staff and making sure that that you reduce turnover, which apparently is one of the little-known incredibly expensive uh, assets or or aspects that affect uh, business and in competition. So in some, uh, his emphasis on infrastructure, uh, on tackling the opioid uh, crisis uh, is is his attempt to demonstrate leadership in presenting a vision for job creation, a vision for investment in infrastructure, and through his hard work, David seeks to lead, leave a legacy for posterity uh, that demonstrates that public service is something that's worthwhile and accessible for all. So David, I'd like to thank you for joining us today. Jordan, appreciate the time. Thank you. This has been another episode of Public Interest Podcast with your host, Jordan Cooper, where we interview politicians, activists, advocates, and others who seek to improve the state of the world. I'll remind you to subscribe on publicinterestpodcast.com and on iTunes, leave a review of this podcast on iTunes, and listen on Stitcher, SoundCloud, CastBox, Blueberry, Player FM, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Should you wish to comment on this episode, you're welcome to leave a voicemail at 240-630-0380. And the first three minutes of that voicemail may be played in future episodes of Public Interest Podcast. Should you wish to support the podcast, you're welcome to leave a contribution in an amount that you feel comfortable with at publicinterestpodcast.com. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. (music) 